Hey everybody, this is Daryl Cooper and you are listening to the Martyr Made Podcast. As you all know by now, Russia has invaded Ukraine. As I release this on March 13th, 2022, the war is still ongoing, shows no signs of abating. The Russian assault seems to be increasing in ferocity as the Ukrainians put up a stout defense in many areas of the country. Several cities have been captured by the Russians. Kharkov is currently under attack. Mariupol is apparently surrounded and cut off. A large force of Ukrainian soldiers seems to be nearly encircled in the east of the country, and the capital city, Kiev, is nearly surrounded as well. Russian artillery, rockets, Missiles and airstrikes are hitting targets all over the country every day, and people are dying. Western governments have responded with unprecedented sanctions, the effects of which are likely to be grave for Russia and unpredictably serious for the rest of the world. Many of you have asked me to share my thoughts on the crisis, and that's what this episode is. It's different from most other episodes I release on the main feed because... I put it together pretty quickly, so I draw on the work of others when they echo my own thinking, and I don't pretend that this is the final word on anything contained in the podcast. One note, I am away from home right now, and I don't have access to my usual recording rig, so the audio here is not perfect, and for that I apologize. Uh, Thank you everybody for your patience these last few weeks. I took a short vacation. My timing on that was great, and I've been absolutely slammed ever since I got back, flying in three people for a Jocko podcast episode I put together, and flying in someone else for an unraveling episode, so it's been very busy, and now I just have my interview on Tucker Carlson today to look forward to in a little over a week. Anyway, this episode is the kind of thing that I would normally release on the Substack subscribers only feed. So if you like this episode, there'll be more stuff on the Substack feed that, that you would like. Uh, and I encourage you to go check it out and subscribe. But I promised you guys that I would put this one out for Gen Pop. So here you go. My thoughts on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Here we go. I'm content to die for my beliefs. So cut off my head and make me a martyr. The people will always remember it. No, they will forget. Hell does exist. God is a thought. God is an idea. It is a place. It is somewhere. Hell does exist. But its reference is to something that transcends all things. Why we must tear ourselves apart for this small question of religion? Oh man, did I pick the wrong week to go on vacation up in the mountains? I leave you guys alone for, what, a week and a half, two weeks, and I come back and we're on the brink of World War III. And I gotta tell you, it's got me in a pretty rotten mood. 
I had something else queued up for this next episode, but like many of you, I haven't really been able to think about anything except the situation in Ukraine, and to be honest, it's been kind of paralyzing. I have a very, very bad feeling about everything I am seeing right now, from pretty much everybody, from Putin, of course, but from Western leaders, from the media, and from the American and European publics in general. I see a lot of panic. I see a lot of building hatred and impulsiveness and vindictiveness. And I see an aggressively policed groupthink that I got to say is worse than anything that I saw in the lead up to the 2003 Iraq war. And that was pretty bad. Here are a few headlines from just the last week or so. I'm sure many of you have seen these, but I want to go over them. The Canadian Hockey League bans Russian 16- and 17-year-olds from the draft. German clinic refuses to treat Russian patients. Russian piano prodigy's performance is canceled despite denouncing invasion. Italy's main university in Milan bans teaching Dostoevsky. I think they walked that one back, but... Other places are banning Tchaikovsky and Tolstoy. Headline from The Hill. Facebook, Instagram, to allow calls for violence against Russians temporarily. From Reuters. Facebook owner Meta is also temporarily allowing some posts that call for death to Russian President Putin or Belarusian President Lukashenko, according to internal emails to its content moderators. And from The Intercept. Facebook lifts ban on Ukraine's neo-Nazi Azov Battalion. Facebook had previously not allowed posts in support of Azov Battalion, just like they don't allow posts in support of the KKK or the Nazis, but now that they're killing people we have decided we hate, along with the Jews and other groups that were already on their shit list, I guess they're cool. Western governments are just seizing the property of Russian citizens abroad without accusing them of any wrongdoing, without any semblance of due process, if they're judged to have ties to the Putin regime, as if any extremely wealthy person with global operations isn't tied in one way or another to their government. I mean, Amazon has a $600 million deal with the CIA, but I would think it was over the top if China seized Jeff Bezos' property because the U.S. government attacked, I don't know, Iraq. And so, yeah, things are going great. Things are just going fantastic over here in our rational and tolerant liberal democracies where we would never do things like ascribe collective guilt to whole populations. Never, ever. As you can tell from my tone of voice, and those of you who follow me on Twitter already know that I have something of a contrarian take on this whole situation. For one thing, I don't like war. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm over that stage of my life. I don't like it. I especially don't like wars between cousins. And I really, really don't like wars that could have been easily avoided. Let's just get this out of the way, okay? Putin made the decision to invade Ukraine. Responsibility for this war falls on him. But as Scott Horton recently put it, while Putin is responsible for the current round of violence in Ukraine, Much of the responsibility for this new Cold War in which the current fighting has its context falls on us, on the United States, and in this episode I'll try to explain why it is that I feel that way. There was a time, not very long ago, when our leaders at least made an effort 
at what's called strategic empathy, which does not mean agreeing with the other side's position, but understanding it so that when we make decisions, we're actually dealing in reality. The great Cold War diplomat George Kennan, one of the most distinguished American diplomats of the 20th century, became famous for his long telegram in 1946, in which he laid out what became the containment policy that defined our Cold War strategy, pretty much. But the next year, 1947, when he wrote that up as an anonymous article for Foreign Affairs magazine, he titled it, The Sources of Soviet Conduct, because that's what he wanted to explain to U.S. policymakers. Kennan had spent the last couple of years in the Soviet Union as the Deputy Chief of Mission, and he spent much of the article trying to correct the almost total ignorance of American policymakers regarding the motivations of the Soviet communists. That was his primary goal in writing it. But since the rise of the third-generation neoconservatives in the 1990s, that plague upon the American political system, strategic empathy has not only been thrown out the window, but people who try to introduce it or any kind of nuance into situations like this are attacked, we've seen it all before, right? A Saddam apologist, a Sadist, Putin apologist, you know, Gaddafi apologist, you know, whoever the Hitler of the moment is. Because that's how neocons very much see the world. Every enemy is Hitler. Anyone who tries to understand the adversary's perspective is a Nazi sympathizer. And leaders have a binary choice between being a weak appeaser like Chamberlain or a stalwart like Churchill. It's a Manichaean, cynical, cartoonish way of looking at the world, but it's a very effective way of getting what you want and marginalizing your opponents, which is why the neocons, while relatively small in number, have gotten their way on most foreign policy questions over the last 30 years. Now, war brings out a lot of emotions, obviously, so when I say something here that Putin is not Hitler, I'm sure I'm going to lose a few of you right off the bat. But... In the Martyr Made podcast, I have always tried to understand the perspectives of disparate groups of both Zionists and Arabs in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I've tried to understand how a bunch of regular American soldiers were transformed into brutal mass murderers in Milai in Vietnam. And I forced myself to see things through the eyes of a deranged cult leader who led 900 people to commit mass suicide. So if you enjoy that aspect of the podcast, but this one triggers you because it's in the news, I just ask you to bear with me while I try to do the same thing here. So Putin is not Hitler, okay? But Hitler is probably a good place to start this discussion because it's very hard, in my opinion, to avoid many comparisons between what has happened between Russia and the West since the end of the Cold War and what happened between Germany and the countries that won the First World War in the 1920s and 30s. Let's take the earlier example first. In 1918, First World War is turning against the Germans, but they still had the capacity to potentially fight on for a while, maybe years. It would have bled the Germans dry, but it would have bled the other side as well. And given the fact that the stress had already caused Russia to collapse, had led to mutinies up and down the French lines in 1917, the Germans could have said to themselves, we're going to keep this thing going in the hope that the other side might break first. They could have done that. It would have cost both sides millions more lives. But instead, the Germans agreed to an armistice. 
believing Woodrow Wilson's rhetoric about peace without victory and the 14 points and all. And so the Germans begin to demobilize, but instead of standing down, the British Navy keeps in place its blockade of German ports in order to gain leverage over the peace negotiations. The estimates are that between 600 and 800,000 Germans died of starvation and diseases related to malnutrition, including something like 80,000 children. The Germans had expected to enter treaty negotiations as junior partners. Junior, to, to be sure, but junior partners. But instead, they were treated as if they had unconditionally surrendered after making the Allies fight tooth and nail all the way to Berlin. And so the British kept the blockade in place until the Versailles Treaty was secured, essentially threatening Germany with more starved children if they didn't accept the terms that were being imposed. This despite the fact that there had been a revolution that overthrew the Kaiser, so the government that the Allies had been fighting all this time, the German government, was gone. The Kaiser went to the Netherlands and lived out his days comfortably, you know, entertaining himself hunting and, and at archaeological digs. The ruinous and brutal Versailles Treaty didn't target the Kaiser or his government, it targeted the German people themselves. Many of the most experienced and revered strategic thinkers and economic thinkers at the time denounced the Versailles Treaty. They said it guaranteed another war with a bitter and resentful Germany down the line. But it was the people who wanted to keep Germany's face in the mud who got their way. We know the story of Weimar Germany. The 1920s turned into an absolute disaster. While the rest of the Western world was experiencing the roaring economy of that decade, Germany hyperinflated its currency just trying to keep up with the reparations that were imposed by the Allies. Hyperinflation is, it's truly one of the worst things that can happen to a society. It's just, it, it, it destroys societies. You may have seen pictures from the Weimar hyperinflation where people are going to buy bread with wheelbarrows full of cash or else they're using cash as toilet paper and fire starter because it's just cheaper than, than buying paper or anything else. That's how worthless the Deutschmark had become as a direct result of conditions imposed by the treaty that every German, right, left, center, communist, capitalist, nationalist, every German felt was forced on them under the gun after they had been tricked into laying down their arms. And then the Allies stripped Germany of 10% of its total ethnic German population, creating new countries on the periphery of the Kaiserreich, like Poland and Czechoslovakia. And there was hardly a German in Germany, again, across the political spectrum, who did not think of this as an extreme injustice. The Weimar government forfeited all of its credibility before it ever even got started, because it happened to be the government when these terms were forced on Germany. And as a result, this terrible situation developed, a situation that led directly to the Second World War. You had the German state, post-World War I German state, but all around it, in what were now foreign countries, but right on the other side of the border, were millions of ethnic Germans who had until yesterday been part of Germany. In those areas where they lived, ethnic Germans generally constituted a supermajority. Germany wanted them back. Most of them wanted to be back with Germany. And so naturally, the majority populations in those countries, the Poles and the Czechoslovaks, etc., who had only just gotten their independence and were very jealous of keeping it, 
They looked askance at their new ethnic German populations as potential fifth columnists. And of course, a situation like that tends to become self-fulfilling, right? The majority doesn't trust the ethnic Germans. The ethnic Germans know that, and they become more alienated from the broader society, which increases the distrust until you start seeing official and unofficial discrimination against the Germans manifesting in various ways. And once that starts happening, it makes the Germans in Germany even more determined to bring their exiled brethren back into the fold, if only to get them out from under a society and government that's hostile to them. That hostility was sometimes exaggerated, but even that is natural that it would be exaggerated, and also it was partly true. The hyperinflation of 1923, again, just laid waste to Germany. I mean, try to imagine you're 60 years old, you've worked your whole life, and you saved your pennies for retirement, and now you've got, say, $500,000 and a pension of, say, $1,000 a month squirreled away. You're not going to be rich, but you're going to make it. You're going to survive. And this is the fruit of your life's labor and what you're going to need to survive until the lights go out. And then, pretty much overnight, I mean, almost literally, a loaf of bread costs $10 billion. And so what's your $500,000 nest egg and your $1,000 a month pension worth now? Well, that happened to virtually the entire German middle class. They were completely wiped out. Even worse, they had to sell whatever personal property and hard assets that they did have just to feed themselves. The people that they were forced to sell to were anyone who had access to outside capital, you know, dollars or British pounds, anything other than, than the Deutschmark. And so this, this situation developed where agents of Western banks were going out all over Germany to buy up real estate and houses and businesses jewelry, furniture, art, anything that held value from these desperate people who needed something to eat. Most German, middle-class German Jews got their faces ripped off by the hyperinflation, just like anybody else. But of the people who were going around buying stuff up at pennies on the dollar, many of them happened to be Jewish, simply, it's an understandable reason, simply because Jews are a people who are spread out all over the world, and so... They have connections in foreign countries that they could draw on to get access to the foreign capital. And so while the German middle class, including, again, most German Jews, were completely destroyed, some people were getting rich by buying up the German economy for next to nothing, and, of course, this led to a tremendous amount of resentment. The 1935 anti-Jewish Nuremberg laws passed by the Nazi regime included things like not allowing German women to work as servants in Jewish households. And this is often interpreted as just reflecting the Nazis' paranoia about Jewish sexual proclivities as the Nazis you know, saw things. But while that might have been part of the motivation, the real drive behind it was the fact that there were a lot of German women working as servants for wealthy Jews, many of whom were perceived to have made their money by joining with these foreign financial institutions to loot the German economy. And of course, that doesn't excuse the Nazis' anti-Semitism. It's just to say that actions taken by the Allies in the aftermath of the war helped to create the conditions in which that kind of anti-Semitism could flourish. Now, you have to be careful with historical analogies, obviously. Uh, but in again, in some situations, and I think this is one of them, the past does have something to teach us about the present and future. And I think the similarities to what happened with Russia after the Cold War ended 
are just too obvious to ignore. And start with how it ended. As the Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev was opening up the USSR, both to the outside world and within its own borders, it became apparent very quickly that liberalization was opening up enough room for nationalists and other dissidents that it could very well lead to the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Now, Gorbachev could have called in the tanks. It might not have worked to save the USSR in the end, but there were still plenty of people willing to kill and die for the Soviet state, and it could have gotten very ugly and very dangerous. But Gorbachev didn't call in the tanks. In 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down, the USSR acquiesced to a massive concession. A massive concession when you consider the history of how the whole Warsaw Pact-NATO world order came into existence. They agreed not to resist German reunification, and not only that, but Germany's entry into NATO. How did we respond to that, though? Well, we followed pretty much the path laid down by the Allies' treatment of Germany after the First World War, almost to a T taking advantage of the opportunity to put our foot on Russia's neck geopolitically and to engage in probably the single biggest looting operation since the Protestant Reformation. I suggest everybody read up a little bit on what happened to Russia in the 1990s. It is shocking, and more than that, it's a disgraceful episode in America's foreign relations. We're not the only ones who are responsible. You got some of our allies there as well, but we were leading the way and we could have stopped it. As far as the economy, what happened in Russia in the 1990s had, again, many similarities to what happened in Germany the first time around. Western banks descended like vultures on the corpse of the USSR, sending agents to make contacts in Russia in order to make sure that they got their hands on the best assets as the economy transitioned from communism to capitalism. Imagine, you're, you're talking about a big, developed, industrialized country with assets worth trillions that were about to be up for grabs. Under the Soviet system, there was a command economy. The state owned all the important industries. And now they needed to transition away from that to a system where all of it would be owned by private individuals and operated as profit-making enterprises. And so the Russians asked some prominent Western economists who had already helped Poland through a similar transition with some success to now come over to Russia and show them how to do it. And one of the main guys that they called in was the Harvard economist Jeffrey Sachs. I think he might have been at Columbia at the time, but he's usually associated with Harvard. Anyway, now Sachs has been demonized by critics of shock therapy as this process of privatization has been called, but uh, mostly unfairly, I think. Sachs and others had already run the same playbook on Poland, privatizing the economy while loans and other aid from the International Monetary Fund helped smooth out the bumps in the road. And they wanted to do it again in Russia. Now just think about what a historic opportunity this was. After 50 years of nuclear close calls and proxy warfare during the Cold War for the West, and specifically the United States, what an opportunity it was for us to be gracious in victory and show some respect to the Russian people who had just overthrown communism and were asking for our help. Instead, we did the opposite. We did the exact opposite. Jeff Sachs has complained 
ever since that once he got over there and started the privatization process going, again, it's, it's usually known as shock therapy, which gives you an idea of how disruptive and traumatic the process is and why any country that it's being tried on needs support if it's going to work. He calls back to Washington, D.C. and says, all right, cool, we're ready. It worked in Poland. It's going to work here. We just need the IMF to run the same playbook and we'll have Russia back on its feet. But all he got was resistance and refusal. He says that he couldn't understand why Washington was suddenly acting like this. He was dealing with the same people he had dealt with when he was in Poland. And they knew how the process was supposed to work. They knew that it was working in Poland. But he says that over time, as he had more and more of these conversations, and as other people came to him to let him in on what was really going on, he began to understand that we didn't want Russia back on its feet. We wanted Russia to stay face down in the dirt so we could pick her pockets and dance on her grave. He's still bitter about it to this day. Sachs resigned in disgust in 2004, and he still talks about it. But 2004, we're still at the beginning of the story. See, the way they decided to privatize the Russian economy was very crude. What they did was create paper, paper vouchers and give one to each Russian citizen. And each voucher represented their share of the Russian formerly state industries, and they could do with them whatever they wanted. But people had no idea what to do with them. And these are people who had no food. They couldn't buy medicine or meet any of their basic needs. The economy had completely fallen apart. And these vouchers, it's not like they were producing income from them or anything. They just had them. You know, their value at the time seemed entirely abstract. Just imagine you're in that desperate situation. No food on your kid's table. And they come around and give you a piece of paper that says, one share of Russian industry. You know, what can you do except sell it to somebody who actually has some money? And who has money except for gangsters running the black market? ex-KGB and military officers selling off guns and other weapons on the black market, and people with connections outside of Russia. And so Western financial institutions did the same thing they did in Germany. They sent agents to hook up with some unscrupulous locals and offered them U.S. dollars and British pounds to go buy up vouchers for practically nothing from desperate people who were literally on the brink of starvation. When you hear about the Russian oligarchs, this is how they got to be oligarchs. By 1997, just think about this. By 1997, seven men owned 58% of the entire Russian economy. Meanwhile, Russian civil society and public health just completely collapsed. You think about this. In the U.S. in recent years, we have experienced unprecedented spikes in mortality from deaths of despair, as well as from the COVID-19 virus. Drug overdose deaths are up 137% in the United States since the year 2000. With all of these factors combined, unprecedented spikes in these deaths, average life expectancy for the worst impacted demographic groups in the United States has dropped by about a year and a half. The life expectancy of Russian men dropped from the high 60s in 1990 to the low to mid-50s by the middle of the decade. And it's even worse than that sounds, because when you dig into the numbers, life expectancy for women was basically unchanged, and so was life expectancy for young male children and male senior citizens. 
Virtually the entire drop was due to a massive spike in early deaths among Russian men. And those early deaths were almost entirely due to suicide, violence, and drug and alcohol poisoning. you have any idea how many murders, suicides, drug overdoses, and alcohol poisonings a country has to have for its life expectancy to drop 15 years? I mean, life expectancy in the country's hardest hit by the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic never dropped that much. And so it was just a total, full-spectrum disaster. And it's happening at the same time that Western financial institutions are picking the bones of the Russian economy clean with the help of local gangsters. Nobody really knows how much was looted. Uh, it could be in the trillions, but it, at least hundreds of billions of dollars were siphoned out of the Russian economy into foreign bank accounts as regular Russian people were literally starving to death and dying from lack of basic necessities. In 1996, when the Russians tried to elect someone other than Boris Yeltsin, who, whatever he had been in the past by this point, was a drunk puppet of the oligarchs, who had an approval rating of less than 10%, America sent an army of consultants and others to go over there and finance and run his campaign for him, while the oligarchs who owned Russia's television and radio stations and newspapers did their part to make sure that he won. Here's part of an article written by the director of the Center for Economic Policy Research, Mark Weisbrot, in 1999. Quote, What were they thinking? When executives at the Bank of New York saw billions of dollars floating in from the home computer of a Russian businessman with ties to organized crime there, did they really believe that these were just ordinary profits? The biggest money laundering scandal in history has prompted calls for a fresh look at the role of American and IMF funds in Russia. To say this is long overdue would be an understatement. The corruption is certainly mind-numbing in scale and scope, with some of the West's favorite reformers, including Konstantin Kagalovsky, the former Russian representative at the IMF, at the center of the investigation. But the tribute that the Russian mafia skims off the top is just one part of the looting of Russia. The other part has been scripted by Washington and its most powerful financial institution, the International Monetary Fund. It is a different form of pillage, to be sure. The robber barons who have taken over the Russian economy since the fall of the Soviet Union have adopted the practice of the Medici family of 15th century Florence. Money to get power, power to protect the money. Washington's money mandarins, on the other hand, descended upon Russia with enormous wealth and power already in their possession. They have used both to colonize Russia, turning a once-developed economy into a third-world country. The results have been devastating. Over the last eight years, the economy has shrunk by more than half. Russian men can now expect to die in their 50s. The chief economist at the World Bank, Joseph Stiglitz, has noted that the number of Russians living in poverty has climbed from 2 million to 60 million in just a few years. Stiglitz, who is one of America's most accomplished and respected economists, has recently argued that these results, quote, are not just due to sound policies being poorly implemented, end quote. It has been one debacle after another since the IMF introduced its shock therapy program in 1992. Like a battered spouse who sees no alternative but to return to her abuser, Russia comes back to the IMF for more credits. But the hundreds of billions that have fled the country in the 1990s have canceled out this aid 
as well as the meager foreign direct investment many times over. At the same time, Russia has accumulated more than $150 billion in foreign debt, with the burden of debt service now reaching a crushing 29% of total export earnings. At some point, this is part's very interesting, at some point, any rational, non-corrupt political leader in Russia has to question whether the country's friendly relations with Washington are worth the price of continued impoverishment. That time may be approaching, as Russia elects first a parliament and then a president over the next 10 months. There will be calls from across the political spectrum to break, or at least loosen, the chains that bind Russia to its Western tormentors. The American press will dismiss these demands as nationalist finger-pointing and attribute Russia's demise to its failure to hew more closely to the IMF's prescriptions. And Washington will pour money into the Russian elections, as it did in 1996, to support its friends. But the Russians might well be better off cutting this toxic umbilical cord, which could give them at least a fighting chance against the powerful domestic criminal class that our own government and private sectors have helped to create. End quote. I said that last part was interesting, and this is why. This article was written in 1999, about three months before Vladimir Putin pushed Boris Yeltsin out and took the helm of the Russian state. Now, at first, the West was cautiously optimistic about Putin. He seemed to be a guy from within the system, and they expected him to keep the grift going as long as he got his cut. But very quickly, it became apparent that this was not going to happen. Putin told the oligarchs, look, you guys can stay rich. You can keep your businesses, but you are done running the Russian government as if it's your own personal property. And those of you who are good with that, fantastic, great. You stay billionaires and we can be friends. Those of you who refuse to get with the program, well, you're going to learn that the Russian state is back and that it will be asserting its prerogatives. Many of the oligarchs, mostly ethnic Russians, accepted the deal, and those are the oligarchs who are still in Russia today, now getting their yachts seized in European ports. Many others didn't. They took their hundreds of billions and fled to New York, London, and Tel Aviv, where they've spent their money ever since lobbying our governments to maintain our belligerent stance toward Russia as long as Putin is in command. And so much for the economy. Let's circle back to the beginning. The Cold War's ending. The Soviet government is trying to decide whether to step off and let its various parts break away or to do whatever it takes to preserve their country. And in 1989, they agree not to resist the reunification of Germany and its integration into NATO. Now, just imagine, okay, imagine the discussions that must have taken place in the Soviet government over this. Germany the country that had brought Armageddon to the Soviet Union within living memory. There were men in the Soviet government who had fought the Nazis in World War II. Was not only coming back together, but would be joining what had always been an explicitly anti-Russian military alliance. And today we see Germany, we might think any concern over them reverting to militarism is a silly one. But there was concern even in the West about that. It's the big reason why we brought them into NATO instead of just leaving them out by themselves. We wanted to be able to keep control of them just depending on, you know, in case anything went down. And Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister of the UK at the time, she was dead set against German reunification to the point that 
We essentially went behind the UK's back and got the rest of NATO on board and then presented it to her as a fait accompli. So if Thatcher was that worried about the danger of German reunification, you can imagine how the Russians had reason to feel about it, especially, again, since it would be joining an explicitly anti-Russian military alliance. But they made the concession. They didn't resist it. They had a ton of troops and military hardware in Germany. They could have put up a fight, but they didn't. The primary reason for that is that the United States and other NATO countries promised them that if the Russians didn't resist with Germany, that that would be as far east as NATO moved. And for years, since these promises were made, there was dispute over the wording or whether it was actually promised or merely implied. But today we know that not only the Russians, but our NATO allies as well, understood it as a guarantee. Scott Horton recently gave a great speech going through the history of this post-Cold War Cold War in which we've been engaged. And he said this, quote, President Ronald Reagan had negotiated an end to the Cold War with the Soviet Union beginning in 1988. But then, under President George H.W. Bush, the American foreign policy community, led by the neoconservatives, adopted a doctrine of global dominance. This was, as Charles Krauthammer put it in Foreign Affairs in 1990, the U.S.'s unipolar moment, an opportunity to remake the world our way and keep it that way. They call it leadership, hegemony, preeminence, predominance, or even full-spectrum dominance. Dick Cheney's Defense Department's post-Iraq War I defense planning guidance from 1992 defined the doctrine for the new decade and into the new millennium. The U.S. must remain the single dominant power on the planet and must maintain enough military power to prevent any possible strategic rivals, such as Germany, Japan, Russia, or China, from even considering an attempt to challenge U.S. power. As those same neoconservatives wrote in their 1998 Project for a New American Century study, Rebuilding America's Defenses, expanding the U.S. presence in the Middle East and the NATO alliance in Europe was at the core of this doctrine. But there was a problem. On February 9, 1990, President George H.W. Bush and his Secretary of State James Baker III promised Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev that if the Soviet Union would withdraw their troops and allow German reunification under America's NATO military alliance, they would not expand it, as Baker put it, one inch eastward beyond that. West German Chancellor Helmut Kohl, French President Francois Mitterrand, and British Prime Ministers Margaret Thatcher and later John Major all made the same promise. Of course, they have lied about it since, at various times claiming this pledge either never happened or that it doesn't count because it wasn't in writing. But in 2019, the records were posted at George Washington University's National Security Archive. You can read the writing yourself. Just last month, at the end of February 2022, an American researcher found in the British National Archives a formerly secret document, minutes of a meeting with the political directors of the foreign ministries of America, the UK, France, and Germany on March 6, 1991, in which German representative Jürgen Krobog says, We made it clear in the 2 plus 4 negotiations that we would not expand NATO beyond the Elbe. We can therefore not offer NATO membership to Poland and the others. As reported by the German paper Der Spiegel, 
U.S. Representative Raymond Seitz said, We have made it clear to the Soviet Union, in 2 plus 4 talks and elsewhere, that we will not take advantage of the withdrawal of Soviet troops from Eastern Europe. End quote. Of course, we all know the story. We reneged on that promise almost immediately. Once the Soviet Union came apart and Russia was on its knees, we started pushing NATO past the eastern border of Germany. And, you know, I mean, think about how this must have been perceived, right? Because U.S. officials, they can lie to us about what was said. But, of course, the Russians were in the room. They know what was said. They know that the U.S. and our allies know what was said. And so how were the Russians supposed to interpret this? Well, we know how they did interpret it. This is Vladimir Putin in a recent speech. Quote, What is unclear here? Are we putting missiles next to the United States borders? No. It is the United States that has come to us with their missiles. They are already on our doorstep. Not one inch to the east, they told us in the 90s. But of course they cheated. They just blatantly lied to us. Five waves of NATO expansion, and now, already, weapon systems are appearing in Romania and Poland, end quote. Now, you and I might disagree with his framing, fine, but we're not responsible for Russia's national security. Now, why would we do this? Many of America's most experienced and influential foreign policy dons asked the same question at the time when it was going on. This is from Scott Horton again, quote, and I'm sorry if I sound agitated. If, if I do, it's because I am. Quote, Many Cold War hawks, such as President Bush Sr.'s former National Security Advisor and close friend, General Brent Scowcroft, Bill Clinton's Secretary of Defense, William Perry, George Kennan, who had coined the containment policy back in the 1940s, and his rival, Paul Nitza, who had favored the more aggressive policy of Soviet rollback, Robert S. McNamara, the Secretary of Defense during most of the war in Vietnam, former CIA directors Admiral Stansfield Turner and Robert Gates, Ambassador to the USSR Jack Matlock, Cold Warrior Senators Daniel Patrick Moynihan, John Warner, Sam Nunn, and Bill Bradley, anti-communist academics Richard Pipes and Edward Lutbach, and dozens more of the highest-ranking active and retired generals, admirals, and foreign service officers all warned Clinton not to go through with it. In an open letter signed by President Eisenhower's granddaughter Susan and 50 of these important foreign policy establishment leaders, they warned in part, quote, the current U.S.-led effort to expand NATO is a policy error of historic proportions. We believe that NATO expansion will decrease Allied security and unsettle European stability for the following reasons. In Russia, NATO expansion, which continues to be opposed across the entire political spectrum, will strengthen the non-democratic opposition, undercut those who favor reform and cooperation with the West, bring the Russians to question the entire post-Cold War settlement, and galvanize resistance in the Duma, that's Russia's parliament, to the START II and III nuclear treaties. In Europe, NATO expansion will draw a new line of division between the ins and the outs, foster instability, and ultimately diminish the sense of security of those countries which are not included. In NATO, expansion, which the alliance has indicated is open-ended, will inevitably degrade NATO's ability to carry out its primary mission and will involve U.S. security guarantees to countries with serious border and national minority problems and unevenly developed systems of democratic government.
This is back to Scott. President Clinton had said that they would build and secure a new Europe, peaceful, democratic, and undivided at last. But he wasn't uniting Europe. He was redividing it. Ambassador Matlock, and this was the second-to-last U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union under Reagan, warned that if you exclude Russia from the expanded alliance, it would necessarily be against them. Here, the Cold War had already been over for two years before the final end of the USSR and the USA was already on the path to restarting it again. George Kennan wrote in the New York Times in 1997, Expanding NATO would be the most fateful error of American policy in the entire post-Cold War era. Such a decision may be expected to inflame the nationalistic, anti-Western, and militaristic tendencies in Russian opinion, to have an adverse effect on the development of Russian democracy, to restore the atmosphere of the Cold War to East-West relations, and to impel Russian foreign policy in directions decidedly not to our liking. Kennan complained to the Times' Thomas L. Friedman in 1998, I think NATO expansion is the beginning of a new Cold War. I think the Russians will gradually react quite adversely, and it will affect their policies. I think it is a tragic mistake. There was no reason for this whatsoever. No one was threatening anybody else. The expansion would make the founding fathers of this country turn in their graves. We have signed up to protect a whole series of countries, even though we have neither the resources nor the intention to do so in any serious way. This is still canon. Don't people understand? Our differences in the Cold War were with the Soviet communist regime. And now we are turning our backs on the very people who mounted the greatest bloodless revolution in history to remove that Soviet regime. Of course there is going to be a bad reaction from Russia. And then the NATO expanders will say that we always told you that that's just how the Russians are. But this is just wrong. His prediction, our present. End quote. So that's George Kennan, again, on the short list of the most distinguished American diplomats of the 20th century. No softy on Russia, okay? Who personally authored the basis of our Cold War strategy. And he's basically saying, yes, of course Russia is going to take NATO expansion as a threat, and of course it's going to increase tensions and provoke a bad reaction from them. He even got the next part right when he says that once Russia does react negatively and takes steps to push back, people will point to those actions as post hoc justification for everything that we did to contribute to the situation. I'll read one more passage from Scott's speech. He just... He just did a great job putting all this stuff in one place. And, and I, I really hope that everybody listens to the full talk. It's really worth it. Uh, I'll link it in the show notes. Quote, President Joe Biden claims that Russia's recent actions have nothing to do with NATO expansion, that this is merely a thin excuse invoked by Vladimir Putin's government. Well, in 2016, Bill Clinton's former Secretary of Defense, William Perry, admitted to The Guardian that, quote, in the last few years, most of the blame can be pointed at the actions that Putin has taken. This is in 2016, so he's talking about Russia's moves in Crimea and eastern Ukraine after the coup d'etat against Ukraine's elected government in 2014. But in the early years, I have to say that the United States deserves much of the blame. Our first action that really set us off in a bad direction was when NATO started to expand bringing in Eastern European nations, some of them bordering Russia. 
Now Perry continues, and remember, this is this guy's the Secretary of Defense back in the 90s under Clinton when NATO expansion was getting underway. He's not some pundit in the peanut gallery. Quote, At that time, we were working closely with Russia, and they were beginning to get used to the idea that NATO could be a friend rather than an enemy. But they were very uncomfortable about having NATO right up on their border, and they made a strong appeal for us not to go ahead with that. And now listen to this. Again, this is still Secretary of Defense William Perry. Quote, it wasn't that we listened to their arguments and said, well, we don't agree with that argument. Basically, the people I was arguing with when I tried to put the Russian point of view out there, the response that I got was really, who cares what they think? They're a third-rate power. And of course, that point of view got across to the Russians as well. That was when we started sliding down that path. Now back to Scott. Secretary Perry almost resigned over NATO expansion back then. In the interview, he also blamed the U.S. for provocative missile defense systems in Europe and the color-coded revolutions in Russia's near abroad for poisoning relations with Putin's Russia. In fact, he said Putin was sure the U.S. was plotting to overthrow him too, something which Perry did not seem to think was too far-fetched himself. Now, this is back to Perry, Clinton's Secretary of Defense. After he came to office, Putin came to believe that the United States had an active and robust program to overthrow his regime. And from that point on, a switch went on in Putin's mind that said, I can no longer work with the West. And back to Scott. As the great Ted Galen Carpenter of the Cato Institute and Antiwar.com pointed out last week, Clinton's Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, conceded in her memoirs that Yeltsin and his countrymen were strongly opposed to NATO enlargement, seeing it as a strategy for exploiting their vulnerability and moving Europe's dividing line to the east, leaving them isolated, end quote. And so next, Scott talks about these diplomatic cables that were written by our ambassador to Russia in 2008 back to Washington, D.C., the ambassador to Russia at the time was a guy named William Burns, and that name might sound familiar because now he is Joe Biden's CIA director. So anyway, in early 2008, Ambassador Burns meets with Putin, who told Burns in plain language, quote, No Russian leader could stand idly by in the face of steps toward NATO membership for Ukraine. That would be a hostile act toward Russia. As part of the same series of meetings, which came just a few months before a big NATO conference in Bucharest, where the idea of bringing Ukraine and Georgia into NATO would be discussed, he also met with Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, and Scott picks it up from here. Quote, In January of that year, Burns met with Russian foreign minister Sergei Lavrov and then wrote a memo for Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice back home entitled, Nyet Means Nyet. Yet means no. Julian Assange sacrificed his liberty to the darkest dungeons of the empire to bring us this information. In the memo, Burns, again, the current CIA director today under Joe Biden, wrote, quote, During his annual review of Russia's foreign policy, January 22nd and 23rd, Foreign Minister Lavrov stressed that Russia had to view continued eastward expansion of NATO, particularly to Ukraine and Georgia, as a potential military threat. While Russia might believe the statements from the West that NATO was not directed against Russia, 
When one looked at recent military activities in NATO countries, for example, establishment of U.S. forward operating locations, etc., they had to be evaluated not by stated intentions, but by their potential. Lavrov stresses that maintaining Russia's sphere of influence in the neighborhood was anachronistic and acknowledged that the U.S. and Europe had legitimate interests in the region. But, he argued, while countries were free to make their own decisions about their security and which political military structures to join, they needed to keep in mind the impact on their neighbors. This is still William Burns. Ukraine and Georgia's NATO aspirations not only touch a raw nerve in Russia, they engender serious concerns about the consequences for stability in the region. Not only does Russia perceive encirclement and efforts to undermine Russia's influence in the region, but it also fears unpredictable and uncontrolled consequences which would seriously affect Russian security interests. Experts tell us that Russia is particularly worried that the strong divisions in Ukraine just listen, this is in 2008, from the current CIA director who was the ambassador to Russia at the time, writing back to Washington in January of 2008. Experts tell us that Russia is particularly worried about the, that the strong divisions in Ukraine over NATO membership, with much of the ethnic Russian community against membership, could lead to a major split involving violence or, at worst, civil war. In that eventuality, Russia would have to decide whether to intervene, a decision Russia does not want to have to face. End quote. That is Joe Biden, CIA director, writing as the ambassador to Russia in January of 2008. And what happened less than three months later? In April of 2008, after the NATO conference in Bucharest, the alliance released an official statement saying that Georgia and Ukraine would both be put on a path to NATO membership. Now, NATO stands for North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and Ukraine and Georgia aren't anywhere near the Atlantic last time I looked. So why the move to bring those two in? You know, why not bring in Ghana or Argentina into NATO? At least they're on the Atlantic Ocean, but no one's talking about that. And I think the reason should be obvious. Because the primary purpose of NATO is as a weapon against Russia. Robert Gates former CIA director and Secretary of Defense under Bush and Obama, wrote in his memoirs that, quote, trying to bring Ukraine and Georgia into NATO was truly overreaching. That was an especially monumental provocation, end quote. And the president of Georgia at the time of this NATO Bucharest declaration was a, well, there's no other way to put it, a State Department, a U.S. State Department asset named Mikhail Saakashvili. And I mean that literally. The guy was educated in the United States on a State Department scholarship. And he came to power in Georgia in a U.S.-sponsored color revolution in 2003. What had happened was that American NGOs, non-governmental organizations, assigned to Georgia helped prompt new elections by helping to fund and organize protests against the Georgian government. And during the election campaign, we sent our guy, Saakashvili, over there with an army of pollsters and campaign advisors and public relations experts, along with a, a big campaign war chest to make sure that he won the election. Well, after he got run out of Georgia for corruption a few years later, surprise, surprise, the guy turns up in Ukraine immediately after the 2014 coup, and we install him as the governor of Odessa. I mean, he's not even Ukrainian. So the guy's just an American asset, straight up, 
And after he'd worn out his welcome in Georgia, we just plugged him into work somewhere else. Back in 2008, when he's still president of Georgia, after NATO declares that Georgia will be fast-tracked from membership, at George W. Bush's insistence, by the way, and over the objections of several European members of the alliance, Saakashvili hears that and reads between the lines and takes the declaration as his marching orders. Because, see, one of the stipulations of the NATO treaty is that no new country can join if its borders are disputed. In other words, we can't bring in a country that's already engaged in a conflict, even if it's a dormant one. It's a mutual defense treaty, so that would commit us to war the moment the ink was put to paper. Well, ever since the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991, when all the countries were breaking away and declaring independence, Georgia declared its independence, but so did the Caucasus territory of South Ossetia, which Georgia considered to be part of Georgia. There was some fighting between the South Ossetians and the Georgian government, but soon enough the Russians and Georgians came to an agreement where they would both deploy peacekeepers to the region and just preserve the status quo. But Georgia never gave up its claim to South Ossetia, and so they had disputed borders. And Saakashvili knew that he would have to clear up this territorial dispute before his country could join NATO. So when NATO declared its intention to bring Georgia in while this dispute was still ongoing, Saakashvili took it as a message. And maybe it was more than an implied message. Who knows what we were telling him behind the scenes? That he should take action to go retake South Ossetia. And so he unilaterally pulls out of the agreement that Georgia had made with the Russians, withdrew the Georgian peacekeepers, and attacked South Ossetia. It was a monumentally stupid move, and the Russians exp- they, they, they responded with extreme force, and Georgia got its ass handed to it. I don't know how many of you actually remember when this was going on in 2008, but I remember it well, and it is really remarkable how Saakashvili was being treated so similarly by U.S. politicians and media to how they're treating Ukraine's President Zelensky right now. I mean, just down the line. He's just a, he's a plucky comic book hero leading his people against an evil empire. The, the propaganda was extremely thick. It was obvious at the time, and more obvious in retrospect, that the United States didn't expect the Russians to do anything because that's what we had gotten used to. You know, the Russians might not like it, but they wouldn't dare get in our way. And the response of many U.S. leaders when they did resist was, was borderline insane. You, know, you had John McCain calling for Georgia to be brought into NATO immediately, even though it was illegal since Georgia was currently at war, and even though doing so would be the same thing as de- declaring war against Russia over a regional conflict that Georgia had unquestionably started. There were other senators calling for nuclear weapons to be deployed to Georgia in the middle of a conflict. And for what? For what? How does adding Georgia to NATO increase NATO's capabilities or improve anyone's security? What was Georgia, and no offense to Georgians, but just realistically, what were they bringing to the table? It's a tiny, poor country in a volatile part of the world, so what would we be getting out of it? I think the obvious answer is that we'd be getting a forward operating base for our long war against Russia. What else is it for? I mean, defense contractors' profits are part of the calculation because a new NATO country needs a whole new arsenal of NATO-compliant weaponry. But if it was just that, then they would be bringing in Ghana and Argentina and everybody else. But NATO expansion has been used for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to hem in and threaten Russia. Our relations with the Russians have been on a downhill trajectory ever since. And we got distracted by the war on terror for a while. But other than that, 
Most of the aggressive actions that we've taken over the last 15 or 20 years have been directed against Russia. I mentioned that we sponsored the Rose Revolution in Georgia in 2003 to install a State Department sock puppet. Just 10 months after that, we send the same ambassador who oversaw the Georgian Revolution to be the ambassador to Russia's ally, Belarus. And surprise, surprise, there's an attempted color revolution against that regime. In 2004, we sponsored the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. That was the first time we overthrew, helped overthrow the government. While that one was going on, the UK paper, The Guardian, did a piece on our role in what was unfolding, and they summarized some of how this works. Quote, Funded and organized by the U.S. government, deploying U.S. consultancies, pollsters, diplomats, the two big American parties, and U.S. non-government organizations, the campaign was first used in Europe in Belgrade in 2000 to beat Slobodan Milosevic the ballot box. Richard Miles, the U.S. ambassador in Belgrade, played a key role, and by last year, as U.S. ambassador in Tbilisi, he repeated the trick in Georgia, coaching Mikhail Saakashvili on how to bring down the incumbent president. Ten months after the success in Belgrade, the U.S. ambassador in Minsk, Michael Kozak, a veteran of similar operations in Central America, notably in Nicaragua, organized a near-identical campaign to try to defeat Alexander Lukashenko in Belarus. That one failed. There will be no Kostinika in Belarus, the Belarus president declared, referring to what happened in Belgrade. But experience gained in Serbia, Georgia, and Belarus has been invaluable in plotting to beat the regime of Leonid Kuchma in, in Kiev, that was who was in charge of Ukraine at the time. The operation, Engineering Democracy Through the Ballot Box and Civil Disobedience, is now so slick that the methods have matured into a template for winning other people's elections. In the center of Belgrade, there is a dingy office staffed by computer literate youngsters who call themselves the Center for Nonviolent Resistance. If you want to know how to beat an entrenched incumbent regime, the young activists are for hire. Last year, before becoming president in Georgia, the U.S. educated Mr. Saakashvili traveled from Tbilisi to Belgrade to be coached in the techniques of mass defiance. In Belarus, the U.S. Embassy organized the dispatch of young opposition leaders to the Baltic, where they met up with Serbs traveling from Belgrade. In Serbia's case, given the hostility the hostile environment in Belgrade, the Americans organized the overthrow from neighboring Hungary, Budapest, and Szeged. The Democratic Party's National Democratic Institute the Republican Party's International Republican Institute, the U.S. State Department, and U.S. Aid are the main agencies involved in these campaigns, as well as the Freedom House NGO and billionaire George Soros's Open Society Institute. And a whole bouquet industry of these NGOs has grown up since this article was written in 04. U.S. pollsters and professional consultants are hired to organize focus groups and use cephalogical data to plot strategy. The usually fractious oppositions have to be united behind a single candidate if there is to be any chance of unseating the regime. Officially, the U.S. government spent $41 million organizing and funding the year-long operation to get rid of Milosevic from October 1999. In Ukraine, the figure is said to be around $14 million. Apart from the student movement and the united opposition, the other key element in the democracy template is what is known as parallel vote tabulation. There are professional outside election monitors from bodies such as the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe 
But the Ukrainian poll, like its predecessors, also featured thousands of local election monitors trained and paid by Western groups. Freedom House and the Democratic Party's NDI helped fund and organize the largest civil regional election monitoring effort in Ukraine, involving more than 1,000 trained observers. They also organized exit polls. The exit polls are seen as critical because they seize the initiative in the propaganda battle with the regime, invariably appearing first, receiving wide media coverage, and putting the onus on the authorities to respond. The final stage in the U.S. template concerns how to react when the incumbent refuses to concede. In Belgrade, Tbilisi, and now Kiev, where the authorities initially tried to cling to power, the advice was to stay cool but determined and to organize mass displays of civil disobedience. If the events in Kiev uh, vindicate the U.S. and its strategies for helping win other people's elections, it is certain to try to repeat the exercise elsewhere in the post-Soviet world. End quote. Again, that's in 2004, which was the first time we helped overthrow Ukraine's government. That same year, we were busy spending at least $12 million to overthrow a Russia-friendly government in Kyrgyzstan. And in 2005, that country's leader had to flee to Russia. This is from a New York Times article. Quote, It would have been absolutely impossible for this to have happened Without that help, said Adil Baisalov, who leads a coalition of non-governmental organizations referring to the uprising last week. Mr. Baisalov's organization is financed by the United States government through the National Democratic Institute. American money helps finance civil society centers around the country where activists and citizens can meet, receive training, read independent newspapers, and even watch CNN or surf the internet. The NDI alone, just one NGO, operates 20 centers that provide news summaries in Russian, Kyrgyz, and Uzbek. Talk shows like Our Times, produced in part with United States government grants, were broadcast over the country's few independent television stations, and Osh TV in the South, where the protests that led to Mr. Akayev's ouster began. Osh TV expanded its reach with equipment paid for by the State Department. The result is that the society became politicized. They were informed, Mr. Kim said. The role of the NGOs was a crucial factor in the revolution, end quote. Now, you can say that the governments that we were helping to overthrow are corrupt, but that's not really the point. Our government's corrupt, and look how upset people got over Russia spending $100,000 on Facebook ads in 2016. I mean, it's not like we're replacing corrupt governments with uncorrupted ones. I, mean, I already mentioned that Saakashvili, the president we helped bring to power in Georgia in 2003, was run out of office in 2012 after, well, this is from Foreign Policy Magazine, quote, after its reformist credentials were undermined by a prison scandal that broke days before the elections. Prison guards were caught on tape sodomizing prisoners with broom handles, and knowledge of these practices went all the way to the top. For all of Georgia's pro-West rhetoric, the scandal showed just how incomplete the UNM's commitment to the rule of law has been. And that's the country that John McCain wanted to bring into NATO. To, uh, what's the line they use? To expand the borders of freedom. Yeah. The president that emerged after the Kyrgyzstan uprising had to flee the country a few years later on corruption charges. 
The government that took power in Ukraine in the 2004 Orange Revolution was so corrupt that the country elected Viktor Yanukovych, the guy who had been the great villain in the Orange Revolution, back to office as prime minister in 2006 and then elected him president in 2010, and he stayed in power until the next color revolution we sponsored in 2014, which was the proximate cause of the mess that we're seeing now. We took another shot at Belarus's leader, Lukashenko, in 2020, failed again. In late 2021, early 22, there was an uprising in Kazakhstan, which I'm not really sure, may or may not have had our fingerprints on it, but even if it didn't, at this point, like how else are people who are affected by it, including the Russians, supposed to think about it after everything that's already happened? We had Serbia in 2000, Georgia in 2003, Ukraine in 04, Kyrgyzstan in 05, Belarus in 05, Ukraine again in 2014, Belarus again in 2020, and maybe Kazakhstan in 2022. And this is all while we're hammering on Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, Iraq again, and a dozen other countries in smaller ways. I recently put together a Twitter thread summarizing a strategy white paper published by the RAND Corporation, which is one of America's most influential defense think tanks. And the paper describes a strategy which reads very much like the one we've been employing for the purpose of, quote, unbalancing and destabilizing Russia. Now, just keep in mind what happened to Russia the last time the country was unbalanced and destabilized in the 1990s. And that's what this paper is presenting as the goal. The paper says several times that Russia is paranoid about our intentions toward her and her allies, and it advises U.S. policymakers to take advantage of that paranoia by placing offensive weapons in countries surrounding Russia and to do it specifically to increase, it says this, this is a quote, specifically to increase Russia's security anxiety. It calls for placing tactical nuclear weapons in countries all around Russia. It says we should develop new long-range bombers and other strike capabilities to, quote, exploit Moscow's demonstrated fear of U.S. air power capabilities and doctrines, which will incentivize Moscow to devote ever greater resources to defend against these threats. You just think about what they're saying here. Russia's already afraid of us, so we should be more aggressive and more threatening toward them because that'll freak them out even more and force them to start an arms race that they can't possibly win. Even says we need to expand our nuclear missile submarine fleet specifically to force Russia to spend more to defend against possible nuclear attack. It suggests ringing the Black Sea with land-based anti-ship missiles to threaten Russia's Black Sea fleet. It suggests withdrawing from the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty and developing previously banned nuclear weapons for potential deployment to Europe. And Donald Trump did unilaterally withdraw from that a couple years ago. The paper acknowledges that, that doing that would provoke a Russian response, but it says that's actually a good thing too, because any Russian response is going to cost them money and resources that they don't have. And there's a lot more in there, including a whole section on overthrowing the regimes of Russia's allies. It suggests using propaganda and psychological operations to delegitimize Russia's elections and damage the government's credibility. That sure sounds familiar. And then it says that we should do what we can to drag out the conflict in Ukraine as long as possible. And this was a few years ago before the current acute war broke out. That we should drag out the conflict in Ukraine as long as possible by providing weapons and other aid. But, it says, we have to do it in a precise way 
that'll gradually build up Ukraine's capabilities without actually giving Russia an excuse to intervene. Oopsie. The paper is really worth reading in its entirety. I'll put it in the show notes. I mentioned a second ago that we were supporting all these color revolutions while at the same time running military operations around the world in Iraq, Syria, Libya, other countries. The Libya one's interesting with regard to our relationship to Russia. You remember that one? Hillary Clinton laughing and celebrating that we came, we saw, he died after she heard about, you know, the brutal and sadistic murder of Gaddafi. Just leave it at that. Well, we actually got the Russians to go along with that one at the UN Security Council. But we did it by lying to them. We told Dmitry Medvedev, who was the president of Russia at the time, Putin had stepped down to the lower position of prime minister, that we only intended to establish a no-fly zone so that Gaddafi couldn't use his air force to attack population centers. And so they go along with it. Instead, as everyone now knows, we simply destroyed Gaddafi's military as a whole and basically provided close air support for the horde of jihadists as they took down the Libyan government. We didn't stop there. We bombarded cities that were loyal to Gaddafi. And right now, we're being bombarded with images of destruction in Ukraine, and this is being used as further evidence that Putin is a figure just this side of Hitler, unless you ask Rachel Maddow or the Atlantic Council, who say he's actually worse. But consider our humanitarian mission in Libya. On May 13th, 11 religious imams, I'm just getting this from Wikipedia, on May 13th, 11 religious imams were claimed to be killed and 50 others injured when a NATO airstrike struck a large gathering in Brega, praying for peace in, con- in conflict-ridden Libya. On June 19th, at least nine civilians were killed in a NATO airstrike on Tripoli. Reporters saw bodies being pulled out of a destroyed building. NATO acknowledged being responsible for the civilians' deaths. On June 20th, The then-Libyan government claimed that 15 civilians, including three children, had been killed in a NATO airstrike on Sormen. On July 25th, 11 civilians were killed by a NATO airstrike on a medical clinic in Zlitin. On July 30th, three journalists were killed and 15 other journalists were wounded in NATO attacks against the Libyan TV station Al Jamaria, which continued to broadcast after the attacks. On August 9th, The Libyan government claimed that 85 civilians were killed in NATO airstrikes on Majer, a village near Zlitin. A NATO spokesman confirmed that they bombed Zlitin on August 8th and 9th. The Libyan government declared three days of national mourning. Reporters were taken to a hospital where they saw at least 30 dead bodies, including the bodies of at least two young children. That's just a brief list, list that I cribbed from Wikipedia. From just a few months in just one country that we attacked. You could draw up much longer lists for Iraq, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria again, and many other countries, Somalia. Now again, the coalition attack on Libya came at a time when Putin had actually stepped down from the presidency and Dmitry Medvedev was in office. And sure, Putin still had one hand on the wheel, but it is not insignificant when a guy who's something like a dictator, steps down and lets another guy step up. That is a big deal. Dictators keep power by making their reign seem inevitable and identifying their own personal interests with the interests of the country. You know, make people think that if this guy is in charge, then we go back to the chaos that we had before he got here. But stepping down and letting someone else step up 
even if he's supposed to be a figurehead, it opens up the idea in the public mind, and among other elites, too, that there are alternatives to that one guy being in charge. But Medvedev was completely discredited after being tricked by us in Libya, and so that was the end of that experiment. Putin took back, took back the presidency with broad public support. And it's interesting when you look at U.S. foreign policy in places other than the Russian borderlands and the war on terror. And what are the other countries the U.S. has tried to overthrow or destroy in the last decade or two? Russia's ally Venezuela, Russia's ally Iran, Russia's ally Syria. Now, is, is there a single government friendly to Russia that we haven't tried to overthrow in recent years? I guess China. Here's an article about the Russian reaction to the current unrest, uh, the recent unrest, rather, in Kazakhstan. This is from just a couple months ago. Quote, Russian President Vladimir Putin said Monday he will no longer allow governments allied with Moscow to be toppled in so-called color revolutions, a reference to the series of popular uprisings that have shaken former Soviet republics. During an online meeting with leaders of a Russian-led collective security alliance, Putin blamed last week's violent unrest in Kazakhstan on destructive internal and external forces. He added, of course, we understand the events in Kazakhstan are not the first and far from the last attempt to interfere in the internal affairs of our states from the outside. End quote. Now this is from an analysis by the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, a major U.S. foreign policy and defense think tank. It's from just a few months after the 2014 coup in Ukraine. Quote, the British strategist Liddell Hart stressed the need to understand rival views of grand strategy and military developments, or the other side of the hill. A range of Russian and Belarusian military and civil experts presented a very different view of global security and the forces behind it at the Russian Ministry of Defense's third Moscow conference on international security on May 23, 2014. The first session of the conference presented an overview of the security situation, focusing on what Russia experts call the color revolution. Russia analysts have used this term since the Rose Revolution in Georgia in discussing the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2004 and the Tulip Revolution that took place in Kyrgyzstan in 2005. Russian military officers now tied the term color revolution to the crisis in Ukraine and to what they saw as a new U.S. and European approach to warfare that focuses on creating destabilizing revolutions in other states as a means of serving their security interests at low cost and with minimal U.S. and European casualties. It was seen as posing a potential threat to Russia in the near abroad, to China and Asian states not aligned with the U.S., and as a means of destabilizing states in the Middle East, Africa, Central Asia, and South Asia. Many of the speakers at the meeting from other countries touched on very different themes, but the Russian and Belarusian military speakers provided a consistent and carefully orchestrated picture of the color revolution. Key Russian officers and officials presented a view of the U.S. and the West as deliberately destabilizing other nations for their own ends. They described such actions as having failed, and as a key source of terrorism. They see the West as rejecting partnership and as threatening Russia along all of its borders with Europe. Senior Russian officials are also using the term color revolution in ways that are far more critical than in the past. For example, the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has accused the United States and the European Union of an attempt to stage yet another color revolution in Ukraine, 
and said during the conference that attempts to impose homemade recipes for internal changes on other nations without taking into account their own traditions and national characteristics to engage in the export of democracy have a destructive impact on international relations. The end result is a radically different reading of modern history, of U.S. and European strategy, their use of force, and U.S. and European goals and actions from any issued in the West and in prior Russian literature. Western experts can argue the degree to which this represents Russian anger over the West's reaction to events in Ukraine, Russian efforts at persuading developing nations in Asia to back Russia in a reassertion of its strategic role in the world, propaganda to cloak the character of Russian actions in Ukraine and near abroad, an effort to justify Russian action in Syria, or a very real Russian concern over U.S. and European actions that have destabilized key Middle East, North Africa, and Central Asian states, along with a host of other possible motives and intentions. What is critical is that the U.S. and Europe listen to what Russian military leaders and strategists are saying. These are not Russian views the U.S. and Europe can afford to ignore. End quote. That's not from Russia Today, okay, or Sputnik. That's not some lefty anti-war activist. It's from a generally hawkish major U.S. defense think tank. I'll repeat the same passage from Bill Clinton's Secretary of Defense, William Perry, that I, that I said earlier. Quote, it wasn't that we listened to their arguments and said we don't agree with that argument. Basically, the people I was arguing with when I tried to put the Russian point of view out there, the response that I got was really, who cares what they think? They're a third-rate power. And of course, that point of view got across to the Russians as well. End quote. Okay, so... I don't want to belabor the point about our meddling in Russia's near abroad any more than I already have, but uh, there is one thing I need to address that I've been seeing on social media a lot. I actually got into a brief back and forth on Twitter with Antonio Garcia Marquez, who I like in general, after he kept using words like supposedly and allegedly with regard to U.S. involvement in the color revolutions. Other people sometimes respond by posting pictures of the thousands and thousands of people out protesting during the revolutions, and they say something like, you know, oh, so I suppose all these people out risking their lives are CIA agents, huh? I don't know if these arguments are disingenuous or dumb, but it's one of those two, and maybe both. The fact is, nobody with any idea what they're talking about denies that the U.S. agencies and NGOs have been the driving force behind the color revolutions of the last 20 years. The people in those countries don't deny it. And American officials have never denied it because they were proud of it. They promoted it as spreading democracy and helping people reform corrupt governments. And they blasted it out on government websites under their list of accomplishments. I'll deal with the point about there being thousands and thousands of legitimate protesters first since it's quick and easy. Of course, most of the people participating in our color revolutions are not assets of the State Department or being paid by the CIA. But that's always been true when we overthrow governments. For example, in Iran in 1953. Every country has things that are worth protesting, and a corrupt oligarchy like Ukraine has more than most. There's no doubt about that. But did you know that at the time of the Maidan Revolution, more Ukrainians opposed it than supported it? Here's the Kiev Post from the time when the protests were ongoing. Quote, Poll, half of Ukrainians don't support Kiev Euromaidan. 
Ukrainians are divided into two almost equal camps in their attitude to Kiev Euromaidan. 50% of Ukrainians don't support Euromaidan, while 45% have the opposite position, according to the December research conducted by Research and Branding Group. The Research and Branding Group conducted its survey of the public opinion of Ukrainians regarding the assessment of the current situation in Ukraine from December 23rd to December 27th. The information was collected through personal interviews in 24 regions of Ukraine, Crimea, Kiev, and Sevastopol. The margin, possible margin for error is 2.2%, end quote. So the idea that the revolution was just this grassroots movement that involved the people of Ukraine against the evil regime of Viktor Yanukovych is just not true. Half the country opposed the entire thing. Pedro Gonzalez did some yeoman's work recently on how this whole process worked in Ukraine. Did you know that Ukraine donated more money to the Clinton Foundation between 1999 and 2014 than any other country in the world? Did you know that Ukraine has spent more money lobbying Washington politicians in the last few years than any country ever has in a comparable period of time? Now look, I know it's legal to bribe our politicians, say by hiring their children to no-show jobs for a million dollars a year, but Ukraine's a very poor country, and yet they're bribing with more money than any country in the world? I know it's not like that proves anything by itself, but that gravy train would be cut off if Putin gets his way in Ukraine. And those same politicians receiving those bribes are telling us that we have to do absolutely everything to prevent that, even if it means the destruction of Ukraine's major cities and years of insurgent warfare. Now, I'm just talking here, you know, but is it just not relevant, not even worth bringing up the fact that the country we're supposed to be ready to sacrifice everything to defend just happens to be the same country that's been bribing our leaders more than any other country in recent years? This is from Pedro Gonzalez's Substack, the article where I'm getting this stuff, uh, titled How the West Sowed the Seeds of War in Ukraine. Quote, By Obama's second term, the engines of regime change in Ukraine had already been set in motion at the State Department during Hillary Clinton's tenure as Secretary of State. Indeed, there were signs of trouble for Ukraine's President Yanukovych as soon as he was elected in 2010, when the managers of the U.S. government-funded National Endowment for Democracy took notice of him. According to U.S. international relations scholar John Mearsheimer, the NED helped pump more than $5 billion into Ukraine between 1991 and 2013 to promote civil society. But its real function is as a vehicle for regime change. Quote, A lot of what we do today was done covertly 25 years ago by the CIA, explained NED co-founder Alan Weinstein. Mearsheimer noted that after Yanukovych won Ukraine's presidential election in 2010, the NED decided he was undermining its goals, and so it stepped up its efforts to support the opposition. Karl Gershman, who served as the NED's president from its founding in 1984 until 2021, called Ukraine the biggest prize in 2013, the year that the seeds of regime change sown by the West would begin to flower, end quote. I wish I could read the whole damn thing to you because there's a ton of important information. Uh, but I gotta get you guys out of here at some point. I just, I encourage everybody to go read the full article on Pedro's Substack. Uh, his Substack's called, uh, Contra, Pedro Gonzalez. And I think most of it's behind a paywall, but, you know, if, if you have five bucks, just sign up for one month and cancel it after you're done reading if you want. It's really worth checking out. 
Let's talk about the revolution itself in 2014. Leading up to the Maidan revolution in late 2013, President Viktor Yanukovych, the president that was overthrown in the, in, in the coup, had been in talks for about a year with the European Union about a bailout for Ukraine's struggling economy. But the talks were at a standstill for two reasons. First, the EU was demanding extreme austerity measures in a country that was already very poor. They wanted big salary and pension cuts, huge hikes in utility rates, things like that, other measures that would hit the Ukrainian public directly and very hard. The EU was also demanding special trade privileges with Ukraine, and this is what brought Russia into the discussion. Russia and Ukraine, see, had uh, uh, special trade arrangements. They'd had special trade arrangements going back a long time, something like we have with Canada and Mexico under NAFTA, or I guess it's the USMCA now. You know, pretty much open borders as far as trade between Russia and Ukraine for a whole range of products and commodities. And so Russia's concern was that any privileged trade agreement between the EU and Ukraine would mean that products from the European Union would be able to go around the EU's agreements with Russia by using Ukraine as a backdoor to flood the Russian market. Very reasonable concern. This is something we had going on in the United States for many years until NAFTA was reformed into the USMCA. You know, for example, China basically shut down our domestic steel production by flooding the U.S. market by selling it through Canada, taking advantage of the privileges that we had given to Canada. And so Putin tells Yanukovych, look, you can do what you want, but we got to protect our own markets. So if you make this deal, then our special trade arrangement is over. Ukraine's economy was deeply tied into the Russian economy. And so the effects of breaking that link would do more damage than any deal with the EU would repair, at least in the short and intermediate term. So Yanukovych turned away from the EU toward Russia and accepted a bailout deal from them instead. And then, just a few months later, the Maidan Revolution breaks out with all the characteristics right down the line of every other color revolution of the last 20 years. As soon as the protests started, U.S. officials were in Ukraine to encourage the people in the streets to keep pushing. Victoria Newland, who was Obama's Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, flew in to show her support and to hand out cookies to the protesters. It was all recorded and they made a big production out of it. As soon as the protests began, three brand new television stations that were funded and staffed by Western NGOs sprung up to manage the propaganda war. John McCain, Senator John McCain, and other powerful U.S. senators flew in to be pictured shaking hands with leaders of Ukraine's neo-Nazi and ultra-nationalist parties and to let the protesters know that America had their backs, while at the same time admitting that what they were trying to do would be devastating to Russia's position. McCain said, quote, There's no doubt that Ukraine is of vital importance to Putin. I think it was Henry Kissinger, I'm not sure said that Russia, without Ukraine, it's an Eastern power. With Ukraine, it's a Western power. This is the beginning of Russia, right here in Kiev, end quote. Now, this is in the middle of winter in Ukraine, so you can imagine what that's like. And when the initial wave of protest didn't result in an immediate change of government, fewer people started to show up each day, and it started to look like the protests might fizzle out. And so Western NGOs worked with local oligarchs to spend millions of dollars turning the whole thing into a giant carnival. They were putting on big like production concerts. 
They were providing free food and drinks and blankets and space heaters, just everything they needed to keep people coming back. In February of 2014, this is a couple months into the protests, a phone call is leaked between Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Newland and our ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Pyatt, where they're just straight up deciding who's going to be in which positions in Ukraine's government, which is very interesting since the phone call was leaked two weeks before the coup even happened. As the protests dragged on without result, extremist and neo-Nazi groups like Right Sector and Svoboda start arriving in Kiev to push the confrontation to a conclusion. Now, you've heard a lot about these groups in recent weeks. Many people have tried to downplay their significance in Ukraine, but there is no question that they played the decisive role in sparking and then consummating the coup in 2014. Now, this wasn't even denied in mainstream Western sources until the Russians started making an issue out of it more recently. There's a half-hour documentary that the PBS series Frontline did back in 2014 called The Battle for Ukraine. I highly recommend everybody watch that. The writer Lev Golinkin wrote this in The Nation magazine in 2016, quote, Ukraine had an established far-right movement long before the Maidan upheavals of late 2013, early 2014. In 2010, Ukraine's then-President Viktor Yushchenko drew widespread condemnation abroad by honoring Stepan Bandera, a Nazi collaborator and leader of an underground army responsible for slaughtering hundreds of thousands of Jews and Poles during World War II. Pre-Maidan Ukraine was home to the Social National Assembly, a white supremacist organization headed by Andriy Beletsky, who's written that his group's mission is to lead the white races of the world in a final crusade for their survival. It also had the Svoboda Party, led by Ole Tyanobuk, a parliamentary deputy whose 2004 request for an investigation of the Muscovite Jewish mafia controlling Kiev caused international headlines. This is one of the guys that Senators John McCain and Chris Murphy were pictured chumming it up with during their visit. In 2012, fellow Svoboda politician, a fellow Svoboda politician called Ukrainian-born actress Mila Kunis a dirty Jewess. All that these groups needed was an opportunity to come out of the shadows. Maidan gave them that chance. Initially, the disparate neo-Nazi factions remained on Maidan's periphery. But as the protests grew violent in late 2013, which led to Yanukovych's overthrow, civil war, Crimea, etc., the far right, quote, played a crucial role, providing muscle to protesters who were largely unequipped to do their own fighting, as the New Yorker described it. Indeed, the instrumental role of far-right groups was acknowledged by journalists and analysts in publications as diverse as The Guardian, the BBC, Reuters, and The National Interest. Even Hannah Thoburn, a commentator who's authored numerous articles in support of Maidan, has pointed out the crucial role played by these groups. End quote. Now, people will say, sure, uh, yeah, there are extremists in the mix, but there were tens of thousands of people, maybe 100,000 people out there protesting. I already mentioned the extravagant lengths that our proxies went to to keep those people around through the cold winter, but just let's just take that point at face value. The role of the extremist groups in these protests is similar to the role that the hardcore Antifa activists have when American protests turn into riots. There are thousands and thousands of people there to peacefully protest who are there for, for good reasons. Antifa's job is to turn that peaceful protest into a riot. 
And we've seen the operation a hundred times. They show up on a block, throw the first bricks through the first windows, lead the way to start the looting. When the crowd starts following and the police move in and it turns into a conflict, they move on to the next block and do the same thing. Or to start fires or to provoke the cops into taking action that inevitably harms some of the peaceful protesters. Now, I'm not speculating. These tactics are well known. They've been written about by their own side. When Ukraine, the extremists, they're not Antifa. They're not drug-addicted children of wealthy parents setting fires for the thrill of it. In Ukraine... You had the groups I mentioned a moment ago, and like the infamous Right Sector, which is a political extremist organization as well as an organized crime syndicate. In 2015, the year after the Maidan coup, a group of 20 or more Right Sector soldiers rolled into the western Ukrainian town of Mukachevo, where their illegal cigarette smuggling business was apparently being infringed upon, and they just started shooting at people, civilians and Ukrainian police. They eventually had to call in the Ukrainian National Guard to go take them down. This is the new government. The men were armed with rifles and grenade launchers. They had armored vehicles. Their trucks had mounted machine guns. The leader of right sector, Dmitry Yarosh, served as a member of parliament in Ukraine for five years until 2019. He's still very influential. It was the presence of these groups that were ready to provoke and engage in very serious violence that really set the Ukrainian color revolution apart from the ones in the past. A few days after that phone call between Victoria Nuland and Jeffrey Pyatt, choosing the post-coup Ukrainian government was leaked, an incident occurred that turned the protests into the coup d'etat that it became. On February 20th, 2014, protesters began to march on the parliament building, and the police set up barricades to prevent them from storming the building. The protesters set those barricades on fire and then pelted the police with stones and bottles and Molotov cocktails. There's there's video of Ukraine police officers like totally on fire. So the police respond with tear gas and rubber bullets. And that's the situation until suddenly live rounds are being fired in all directions. And when the smoke clears, a lot of people are dead. U.S. government and the Western press announced that the shooting had come from the Ukrainian police at the specific order of Viktor Yanukovych, and they even threw in likely with encouragement from Vladimir Putin. But from that very day, everybody involved in the pre-Maidan Ukrainian government, from Yanukovych on down to the police on the scene, have insisted that the shooting originated from windows of buildings controlled by the protesters, and that the bullets of those snipers were aimed at both the police and the protesters at the same time in order to get it going and bring the protest to a head. Now, if that sounds crazy to you, first of all, you have to know that these extremist groups are known to have done similarly barbaric things many times. You know, after the Maidan protest turned into a coup, anti-Maidan protesters in the city of Odessa occupied that city's main government building. And so a group of right sector thugs besieged the building blocked the exits, and set the place on fire, burning to death 39 people. In the city of Mariupol, in 2014, right sector guys, alongside soldiers under the command of the post-coup Ukrainian government, rolled in with heavy weapons and armored vehicles to retake an occupied police station, and they just start shooting at anyone they saw. They massacred at least 22 people. So this is who these people are. And kicking off a revolution by shooting both into the crowd and at police is not beyond them by any stretch of the imagination. If you really want to dig into this, 
look up a paper written by a professor at the University of Ottawa named Ivan Kachanovsky. The paper is available online and it's titled The Sniper's Massacre on the Maidan. It's 79 pages and it presents a very thorough forensic investigation that I won't try to summarize here, but this passage from the abstract will give you some idea of how thorough it is. Quote, the paper analyzes a large amount of evidence from different publicly available sources concerning this massacre. Qualitative content analysis includes the following data. About 1,500 videos and recordings. There, there were surveillance cameras all over the place. So, uh, you know, and then, of course, people who were taking their own videos. About 1,500 videos and recordings of live Internet and TV broadcasts in mass media and social media in different countries, some 150 gigabytes. News reports and social media posts by more than 100 journalists covering the massacre from Kiev. Some 5,000 photos from the scene and nearly 30 gigabytes of publicly available radio intercepts of snipers and commanders from the Special Alpha Unit of the Security Service of Ukraine and internal troops and Maidan massacre trial recordings. The study also employs field research on the site of the massacre. Eyewitness reports by both Maidan protesters and government special units commanders, statements by both former and current government officials, estimates of approximate ballistic trajectories, bullets, and weapons used, and types of wounds among both protesters and the police. This study establishes a precise timeline for various events of the massacre, the locations of both the shoot of both the shooters and the government snipers, and the specific timeline. End quote. And so after meticulously reconstructing the crime scene using the mountains of surveillance footage and cell phone video and pictures and interviews that they had, it says, quote, This academic investigation concludes that the massacre was a false flag operation which was rationally planned and carried out with a goal of the overthrow of the government and seizure of power. It found various evidence of the involvement of an alliance of the far-right organizations, specifically the right sector and Svoboda, and oligarchic parties such as Fatherland. Concealed shooters and spotters were located in at least 20 Maidan-controlled buildings or areas. The various evidence that the protesters were killed from these locations include some 70 testimonies, primarily by Maidan protesters, several videos of snipers targeting protesters from these buildings, comparisons of positions of the specific protesters at the time of their killing and their entry wounds and bullet impact signs. The study uncovered various videos and photos of armed Maidan snipers and spotters in many of these buildings. The paper presents implications of these findings for understanding the nature of the change of government in Ukraine, the civil war in Donbass, Russian military intervention in Crimea and Donbass, and the international conflict between the West and Russia over Ukraine, end quote. Now, does this mean that's what happened? No. But the people saying that it was a massacre carried out by Ukrainian police at the order of Yanukovych haven't presented a shred of evidence for their position, so it's as good a theory as anything else we've got. The hardcore groups like Right Sector certainly had the motive, and they had the capability. So, if you're an American, imagine that the January 6th protesters, or if, if you're on the other side, say Antifa protesters, but I'll go with the January 6th folks. Imagine that the January 6th protesters, instead of running into the Capitol that day, 
decided to camp out and turn it into a long-term event, you know, like Occupy Wall Street or the Maidan. Then imagine that money starts flowing in from the Russian government and groups connected to the Russian government to put on concerts and to provide the people there with food and drinks and blankets and whatever else they need to keep the thing going. Then, high officials from the Russian government, very high officials, equivalent to John McCain, start showing up and giving speeches to the protesters, encouraging them to keep up the fight against the corrupt American government and taking pictures with people literally wearing Nazi insignia in their photographs. Then those protesters do try to storm the Capitol, and the police set up barricades, but the protesters set the barricades on fire. They throw bottles and rocks and Molotov cocktails that set police officers on fire. Now, buildings all around the Capitol have been occupied and placed under the control of the protesters, and snipers can be seen in the windows of those buildings. Then violence breaks out, and they successfully overthrow the government of the United States. Then protests against the coup break out in liberal cities all over the country, and the new government sends heavily armed gangs of neo-Nazis alongside government forces to go put down the protests, and in several cases they simply massacre people. Then the first action taken by the new government is to ban the Spanish language from use in America. And literally the first legislative action taken by the post-Maidan Ukrainian government was to ban the Russian language as one of the country's official languages. So following all of this, the heavily Hispanic regions in the southwest of the United States say, well, screw this, we're under no obligation to be governed by these people who just seize power by force. And so they split off and declare themselves the Free Latino Republic. And then the government sends real military forces to attack them with heavy weapons, and training and intelligence provided by Russia. And so the Mexican government sees this and says, well, we got to do something. And they start providing aid to the Free Latino Republic. And Russia reacts by coordinating global sanctions against Mexico for doing that. And throw in the fact that everyone knows Russia has already pulled off similar operations in a half dozen of Mexico's allies in just a few preceding years. Finally, after eight years of attacks by the new American government against the Free Latino Republic, in which some 14,000 people were killed in the breakaway regions, including thousands of civilians, and millions of refugees have been forced to flee the region into Mexico, and we keep hearing about refugees from the current Russian attack, and that's very real, but over 2 million refugees have been forced to flee the Ukrainian government's onslaught in eastern Ukraine into Russia and Belarus in the last eight years. And so finally, the Mexican government decides it has to intervene directly, and it launches a military attack against this American government that seized power during the coup. Now, that is a pretty close approximation to what has happened in Ukraine since 2014. That story doesn't mean that you have to think Mexico would have been justified in launching its attack, but it sure turns it into something other than the black and white good versus evil story being shoveled down our throats by Western politicians in the corporate press because we are the Russians in that story. And this podcast isn't intended to convince you that Putin is some kind of great guy. Okay, He's a ruthless dude. Nobody but a ruthless dude would have been able to almost single-handedly wrest control of the Russian state from oligarchs who had been a decade in control and had private military forces better equipped than the Russian army, and to do it without having a civil war. He, he, he's, a, he's a hardcore dude, okay? 
And neither does this detract from what the Ukrainian people are going through, or their hopes and aspirations. But I'm an American, and my concern is with what my country does, and has been doing. And if a real war were to break out, if one thing were to lead to another, and all of a sudden, like, we're getting into it, I mean, the Ukrainians are already suffering, but if that were to happen, and I asked myself, if we had done everything on our end to avoid this conflict, I would have to say that the answer is obviously no. That in fact, we have been doing everything possible to provoke, prolong, and inflame the situation. And it's the Ukrainians who are going to pay the price for it. Now, I don't know how anybody could deny that in good faith. I really don't. And now that the war is on, it's really striking how excited so many American leaders are about it. It's, it's disgusting. Anyway, I guess I could go on forever, but I'll just leave it here for now. All I hope is that this war ends as soon as possible. Okay? Just, just as soon as possible. And that we as Americans could take an honest look at what our own incredibly corrupt leaders have done to bring us to this point. Thank you for listening. Everything.